We had all those kids in here this morning, and I was thinking about uh, this week uh, kids and how they come to the Bible sometimes. And sometimes kids say some funny things when they hear Bible stories, whether they hear them out of context or how they apply them to their lives. And I read a couple of those uh, about those this week. One child, uh, his Sunday school teacher was describing how in the Bible, there's a story of Lot's wife, who uh, when they were leaving a city, she uh, looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. And he said, hey, uh, this child's name was Jason. Jason said, uh, my mommy once looked back while she was driving and she turned into a telephone pole. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure he's kind of getting it. Sunday school teacher was telling her class the story of the Good Samaritan. She asked the class, if you saw a person lying on the roadside all wounded and bleeding, what would you do? And one thoughtful little girl said, I think I'd throw up. <laughs> it's honest. It's honest. I like this one. A Sunday school teacher said to her children, we've been learning how powerful kings and queens were in Bible times, but there is a higher power. Can anybody tell me what it is? And one child shouted out, aces. <laughs> and this is uh, perhaps my favorite. Nine-year-old Joey was asked by his mother what he had learned in Sunday school. And Joey said, well, mom, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. When he got to the Red Sea, he had his army build a pontoon bridge and all the people walked across safely. Then he radioed headquarters for reinforcements. They sent bombers to blow up the bridge and all the Israelites were saved. Now, Joey, his mom said, is that really what your teacher taught you? Well, no, mom, but if I told it the way the teacher did, you'd never believe it. And actually, that's a good lead-in for what I talk about this morning. Because the truth is, sometimes you come to accounts and stories in the Bible, and you hear them and you understand them as kids, and you understand them as one way, but when you come back to them as adults, they're a little harder to understand. Or when you come back to them as adults, you see things that you didn't see when you were reading them as children and, uh, and you have different questions than when you might have had when you're reading them as children. And this morning, we come to one of those stories. If you're with us uh, today and you're a guest, you're kind of jumping in at the tail end of a series we've been in in the book of Joshua. Um, and we're ending that today. Uh, we're going to be beginning the book of John on Good Friday, Easter, and in the coming weeks, we're going to start the gospel of John. But we're finishing up a book in the Bible called Joshua. And Joshua was a military leader that God had used to lead his people. And we're coming to a story in the book of Joshua that as kids, almost every kid that has grown up in church knows the story of Joshua and the walls of Jericho. It's a familiar story. Um, but as I said, when you come to it again as an adult, sometimes it looks a little bit different. So many of you might not know the story, so let me tell you the story. It's in Joshua chapter 6. If you have your Bible, your copy of God's Word, and you want to turn there, you're welcome to turn there. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to tell you the story, and then I'm going to refer back to some of the verses that are a part of it. If you, want a, if you don't have a Bible and you want to look 
uh, at a copy of God's Word. There should be one in a chair around you on one of those racks under your chairs or one in front or behind you or near you. Uh, you can look at the table of contents and find the book of Joshua and we'll be in chapter 6. Uh, so here's the story. Here's how it goes. God has been leading his people and he made a promise to them. This is back right now, time setting, we're about 1500 BC. And God had made a promise to his people long before that, that he would create a people for himself in order to bless them and reveal to the world who he was. And he was going to do that through this people he was creating called the Israelites. And he promised that he'd make them into a people and he promised that he would give them a land. And they're coming into the land now. God has miraculously brought them uh, out of uh, the desert. He's miraculously brought them across the river Jordan. And now he's bringing them into the land he's promised them. And the first thing they come to is a city called Jericho. And Jericho is not really a large city the way we would think. Don't think New York, don't think LA, don't think Boston, not like that. A city in Bible times, uh, as best as archaeologists can tell, is about six acres. That's about how big it was. Probably about 600 meters in circumference. You could walk around it pretty easily. Not huge, but it was a city. It was a fortified city. What that meant is it had not just one wall, actually had two walls that were encircling the city. And uh, these walls are pretty intimidating. Usually when they'd wall off a city to, to keep enemies out, some of these walls could be 30, 50 feet high, double walls, 10, 20 feet thick. They were definitely, they were serious about keeping people out. And then they would even dig down in front of the wall to bedrock so that you couldn't tunnel under the wall. And, uh, and they had all kinds of fortifications. So the people of God come into this land that God said he's given them. They know they're going to have to fight and battle because that's how land was, was, was uh, you know, gotten back then, acquired. And so they know they're going to have to fight. And they come to this city and it's fortified. And so what are they going to do? And so God gives them some very specific, but what may sound like strange instructions. He says, here's what you're going to do. And the people of Israel at this time are somewhere between a million and two million people, probably. Best estimates can tell. Um, here's what you're going to do. God says, when you get there the first day, I want you to get all the people and I want your priests and your, uh, your, your leaders, your priests to have trumpets that they're going to blow. And I want you to take the ark of God, which is where the presence of God dwelled. And I want all the people to march around the city of Jericho without saying a word. Complete silence. Just blowing the trumpets. No one says anything. Just march around the city. And that's it. That's what you do on day one. And on day two, I want you to get up and do the exact same thing. March around the city. Don't say a word. Just blow the trumpets. Go, go sit down. And I want you to do that for six days straight. And then on the seventh day, God's number of completion and perfection. On the seventh day, I want you to do something different. On the seventh day, I want you to march around the city of Jericho seven times. Same way. Don't say anything. Blow the trumpets. But don't say anything. Just walk around the city seven times. And that's what I want you to do. And after the seventh time, when the trumpets blow, I want everyone, God says, to let out a giant shout. And when you do, in that moment... 
the walls of the city are going to fall down. And you're going to go in, and you're going to battle, and you're going to take the city. And that's what they do. That's exactly what they do. They follow God's instructions. They, uh, they walk around for six days once, and then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times, and they blow the trumpet, and they scream, and the walls fall down. And God does what he says he is going to do. Now, to you and I, this might seem strange. This might seem strange to do this, but they had seen God work in so many ways in the past, so they did it. Second thing that happens is they go in and they take the city and they destroy everything in the city. Everything living, they battle and they kill. Every man, woman, child, animal is destroyed. We don't talk about that stuff as much when we tell the story to the kids, but that's in there. Sometimes we miss that when we're kids. We'll talk about that in a minute. Third thing that happens is uh, there's a family that's spared. Rahab the prostitute, as she's described in Scripture, she had put her faith in God. She had helped the Israelites in the past, and her and her family is spared, and she's come out. So these three things happen. The walls fall. They destroy the city. Rahab is spared. The story is simple to understand, but difficult to accept and apply. It should be easy to preach. It's familiar. Yet I'm challenged by this story each time. And when I come to the story, there are three things that surprise me. I want to share with you just this morning briefly, three surprises in this story. And then uh, just quickly how I think we can apply them to our lives today. So three surprises. They all begin with M. And here's the three surprises that come. First of all, I am surprised by the miracle. I am surprised by the miracle. If you are not surprised by this miracle, then you've been in church so long and become too familiar with this story because this is crazy. I have been in a lot of places that get really loud. You probably have been too. And the walls have never fallen down. You've probably been in a sports stadium or a concert. I mean, the decibels were cranked and people were screaming and the walls didn't fall down. And yet here, the walls fall down after they march around seven times on the seventh day at the exact moment when God says, let out a scream, the walls came falling down. This is an incredible miracle. First of all, the people's faith amazes me. That surprises me because I don't know. You and I might be a little more skeptical. We might be more cynical. Really? There might be some people saying, Joshua, you think we should, um, you know, build, you know, maybe go over some strategies, do some drills, do some military stuff, build some more weapons, you know, do some, mar you know, you know, what should we do? You think, no, God said, march around the city. We'll march around the city, not talk, just do what God said. And they do it because they've seen God act. And so they trust him. But the other thing that amazes me is that the walls fall down. I mean, that's an incredible thing. And you look at that and you say, well, did that really happen? Well, archaeologists, as they, are, as they excavate the sites, and as they discover more about old Jericho, uh, are finding that the archaeology of the site of old Jericho lines up with the biblical account. They've been excavating Tel Jericho since the 1800s, uh, this site. And what they found is around this city, there was a 15-foot stone wall. And atop that retaining wall stood a freestanding mud brick wall that was about six feet thick and three or four times higher than that. And there were double walls that surrounded Jericho. 
Um, and I think we've got some pictures we can show you of some, of some of what they find. So what Jericho could have looked like right there. It had a double wall. You got houses in between uh, both of those walls. And as they've excavating, this is what they're coming up with, that this is what the city of Jericho looked like, that there was a city. It did have a double wall. It did have a high wall. But they're also finding this as they excavate, that the mud walls are crumpled in a heap at the base of the retaining wall that archaeologists and architects believe there was an earthquake that happened that collapsed the walls. And on the east side of the city, the archaeologists found a layer of burned ash about one meter thick, indicating that the city was destroyed by fire just as it is accounted for in the biblical account. And what they're finding is their lineup of their excavation of Jericho is lining up exactly with a city that had a wall that was destroyed instantly and then the city was burned. And now the earthquake could have caused the wall, but the miracle is that at the exact moment, at the exact time that God said the wall would come down, whatever he used to bring that wall down happened. I am surprised by the miracle. I'm not surprised that God can do a miracle. I'm just always surprised and amazed when God does a miracle to be able to see it and understand it and look at it. We should be in awe when something supernatural happens. I'm surprised by the miracle. Second thing I'm surprised by, I'm surprised by the massacre. Maybe you are too. Uh, chapter 6 verse 21 says, then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. As a kid, maybe you glance past that and you don't think too much about it. As an adult, you look at it and you say, what's going on there? And maybe you're in here for the first time. You're visiting and you're saying, Pastor, you picked a strange text for Sunday when people are visiting. Um, but hey, I, I, we're not afraid to ask questions and look at what the Bible says. And I think it's important to understand these things as adults. And so you look at this and the destruction of the city. If you're not surprised by the destruction of this city, the violence, the killing, then either you're probably too familiar with the text and you um, have lost that initial shock of it, or you just think it's happened so long ago, it's irrelevant, and uh, you don't think about it either. But either situation can keep us from seeing and understanding the passage and what God would say to us in it. What is God doing here? What is God doing here uh, coming to this story? Why does this happen? Um, I think there's some questions that are raised. Let me tell you what's not surprising to me. What's not surprising to me is that God is able to take life anytime that he would want to or see fit. And that may sound strange to you, but if you think about, if you believe in God, and if there's a God, if God is God, he's creator, he's outside of creation, he's created it all, it all belongs to him, he can do really whatever he wants with what he has created. If, if you create a snowman, you can knock the snowman down. If you're, you know, God is God. If God is, God has to be able to be God. He has to be in full control. He has to be full powerful. It doesn't surprise me that God is able to do that. 
Doesn't surprise me that God is that power. I wouldn't argue with that. If you're going to tell me you serve a God, he should be a powerful and mighty God. I'm not going to, not going to argue. That doesn't surprise me. I don't think it surprises us if we think about who God would be. What surprises us or the problem we have is two things. One, just because God can take a life, should he take a life? Is it justified? Is there innocent life, innocent life that is taken? That's a question. And the second thing that's hard about this passage is the fact that he uses other humans to execute his judgment. And that becomes difficult. Is that okay? So those are the problems we come to when we come to this passage. The first question, I think, is answered fairly easily from uh, theology of is it justified? Is it, is it ever, is it innocent life that's taken? God as creator certainly has full rights and control over his creation. However, God has imposed a, and given a moral law to the world that we live in. He's given a moral law that's written on the hearts of men and women that we have a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And he's given a moral law for his universe that, that he has not only given but shows us in himself. But here's the law that he said. He said that God said the result of breaking the moral law, sin, the result, the consequence, is death. Ravi Zacharias, um, uh, Christian apologist, theologian, puts it this way. God said to Adam and Eve... In the day that you do this, you will surely die. These, death that comes in, entailments are not of God. These are the entailments of our choice to live without him. And then he quotes C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis uh, said this. There are two types of people in the world. Those who bend their knee to God and they say to God, your will be done. And those who refuse to bend their knee to God and God says to them, all right, your will be done. What you see in the Old Testament ramifications is what happens when I say, my will be done. God said that the consequences of sin, and we're all sinners, we've all at some point fallen short of the law, is death. And so it comes in. So the truth is there is no really truly innocent person who has ever died. Uh, that God is justified in, uh, in what he wants to do and when he wants to do it. There's no life that leaves this earth, whether it's from a sword, a bullet, or just the wearing down of our bodies after a long, long life that isn't in God's control. If there is, then he's not God. God is in control of life and death from the beginning, from the young to the old, it's not every life that leaves the earth doesn't first pass through the control of God. Whether it's cut short or long, if God is God, then life and death are in his hands and he's in control. What makes the question even harder, though, is the fact that in this passage, he uses human beings to execute judgment upon a people. People are sinful. No one's innocent. And the Canaanites were no different. The people of Jericho were no different. In fact, uh, one scholar described them as, you know, the evil that went on. Uh, there was, they were mocking God and uh, involved in all kinds of child sacrifice and all kinds of things. Just sinners like the rest of us. Um, and so they weren't innocent. And yet he uses people to execute his judgment. Um, I can't improve on Pastor John Piper's answer to this 
problem question that comes up. He says, um, God says to Joshua, go in and clean house and don't leave anything breathing. That's what we read. There's a season in history where God is the immediate king of the people of Israel. There was a political and ethnic dimension to it. He uses this people as his instrument to accomplish his judgment in the world at that time. Pastor John Piper says. But then he goes on to say, the church today is not Israel. And we are not a political entity. And therefore, the word we have from the Lord today is love your enemy. Pray for those who abuse you. Lay down your life for the world. Don't kill in order to spread the gospel. Die in order to spread the gospel. There's a unique time of history that, we're, that, that is going on in Joshua. God was revealing himself as God for the first time. He's showing the world who he is, that he's all-powerful, that he's almighty, that he's holy and just and merciful and loving. He's revealing himself to it, and it's a unique time in history. And he's teaching. He's actually teaching the Israelites because he says to them, look, if you don't obey my law, if you don't live the moral law, then the same thing that I've had you execute judgment on this nation is going to happen to you. In fact, in the very next chapter, we're not going to get into it, in the very next chapter though, the exact same thing happens to the Israelites. They disobey God, they disobeyed his commands, and God has them lose a battle to another nation, and they lose, and people die, and God says, this is who I am. This is you. This obedience, this thing, this, this relationship thing is serious. And so he's teaching them about who he is. I'm surprised by the massacre. Because God is powerful as creator and um, the consequences of our sin is death. And there's no innocent person that's ever died. God is able to do what he wants to do. But I'm still surprised. And I think we should be come to that, we should come with our questions. Why is this and what is this different about it? But there's a third thing, because some people would say, well, this doesn't seem to line up with the God I've heard about or the God I hear about. What about the love and grace and mercy? And the third thing I'm surprised by, the third M I'm surprised by, I'm surprised by God's mercy. I'm surprised by God's mercy. Chapter 6, verse 25 says this, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. God is revealing himself to the world to who he is. We would know nothing about God unless he revealed it to us. And you find stories in the Bible accurately representing certainly the violence of that day and what was going on in that day. And yet right within those stories, you also begin to understand the radical love and mercy of God. In the midst of all the violence, the God of the Israelites begins to do things that no other God would do. Sometimes people say, well, how come the God in the New Testament and the Old Testament looks so different? It's really a false dichotomy because if you look closely at both, you see a holy and loving God before Jesus in the Old Testament and you see a holy and loving God after Jesus in the New Testament and in our time. In the Old Testament, you see a God who's like no other God. You see a God who says, care for the widows, the orphans, 
the strangers, the immigrants, the aliens. No other God was given those commands to his people. Care for those. Care for the least of these. God gave commands that said, when you harvest your field, don't harvest it all the way. Don't harvest the corners. Leave it for the poor. Take care of the poor. Watch out for those around you. You shouldn't harvest all of the food. You should be taking care of the poor that are around you. Love your neighbor. Care for them. God was revealing himself not only as a holy God, as a just God, but also as a merciful and a loving God. He was revealing himself through this. Because what we must not miss is that in the midst of the destruction of the city of Jericho, God spares a prostitute and her family because they put their faith and their trust in God and God spared them. The starting point is that man is sinful. The sentence has already been pronounced. We're already under judgment. But what we see in Rahab and throughout Scripture is that God is merciful. And if you will put your faith and your trust in him, that he's merciful to save and to deliver. Rahab and her people knew all about God's mighty works. They knew all about how God had delivered his people through the Red Sea. And yet, as far as we know, Rahab is the only one that put her faith and her trust in this God. And she was spared and saved. It's interesting that the archaeology that I was talking about, about the wall collapsing, if you're a keen reader of the scripture, you would say, wait a second, wasn't Rahab's house built into the wall? And if the walls came down, how could Rahab had been spared? Well, the archaeology that we're finding as they excavate Jericho, it wasn't the entire wall that collapsed. Uh, there was part of the wall that was spared. Part of the wall that collapsed kind of built an earth ramp that the people could walk up and go into the city. But uh, German excavations from 1907 to 1909 uncovered a portion of the lower city wall on the northern side that did not fall. The houses built against it were still intact. Um, and what it revealed was that this part of the wall didn't fall, but not only that, its northerly location, I mean, we you know, there's no nameplate on it that says House of Rahab. But the northernly location was the closest location of the city to the Judean desert where the spies would have been coming from. They would have been coming from and they would have gone into the city of Jericho and then gone back to the desert. So it's a good probability that that part of the city wall that did not collapse was where Rahab and her family were living and they were spared. Surprised by the miracle, surprised by the massacre, and surprised by God's mercy. What happened then is not some kid's story. It has an impact for kids, but it has an impact for us too. What does God tell us from this story? Here's what I think we can take away. Right now, you're either in one position or the other in this story. Either you are outside the walls or you are inside the walls of Jericho. When you are outside the walls of Jericho, if you find yourself in a place where you are a follower of God, you know God, you're God's people, you love God, you're a Christian, you follow him, you love God, uh, but you find yourself at times running against a fortified obstacle. 
You find yourself at times running against a, an obstacle that you look at and you say, I don't know how we're going to get in, get through, or get by this. You run into a wall. And you say, you're a follower of God and the realities of living in this world, that that happens. Well, if you find yourselves and you're outside the walls of Jericho, what you can know from this story is God is powerful enough to get you in and through and over and wherever he has promised. Because there are times you'll find yourselves, God has promised you something. God has said there's something for you. And you find yourselves running into a fortified obstacle on the way to that. Know that God is powerful enough to get you through, to bring the walls down without your help. Marching around didn't bring the walls down. The scream and the trumpet didn't bring the walls down. It wasn't some reverberation of all those people screaming. God brought the walls down in that moment. The truth is, when you're outside the walls of Jericho and you run into something, it won't be your own effort. It won't be your own strength. It won't be your own smart or great idea that'll get you through. It'll be God himself that'll get you through that situation. Get us through. But maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're inside the walls of Jericho. People inside the walls of Jericho knew that the army was coming they knew that uh, they were under God's judgment. They knew that, that, uh, that they, were, they were condemned, that the, the army was coming. Maybe you find yourselves on the inside of the walls where you know that uh, you're a sinner, that you are under God's judgment save for the mercy of God. Know that God is merciful enough to get you out because that's the story of Rahab. That if you will put your faith and your trust in God, that he is merciful enough. Though we are sinners, though we have forsaken and, and, and uh, betrayed him, though we have gone and, and wronged that moral law, God is merciful enough to get you out. When you're outside the wall of Jericho, God's powerful enough to get you in. When you're inside of Jericho, God's merciful enough to get you out. You have a, um, hopefully, I don't know if we ran out, but maybe you have a palm there at your seat, a little blade of grass. And if you're new to church, you're wondering, why did they give me a piece of grass when we came into church? It is Palm Sunday in the Christian church. It's an important day. We remember the day where Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And when he did, they put palm branches down before him as he rode into Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, we remember a time when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of the week before he would be crucified, tried and crucified and rise again, which we'll celebrate next Sunday morning. Once again, a city is entered. Once again, walls are breached, but not by a powerful act of destruction, but by Jesus riding on a donkey. And once again, I am surprised. I am surprised at the miracle and the massacre and the mercy of God. I am surprised at the miracle of God becoming man and his feet touching the dusty earth of this little planet. I am surprised by the miracle that God himself would come down because we are a sinful people and we needed someone to take care of our sin and that he would come down and be the sacrifice for us. I am surprised at that miracle. 
I am surprised at the massacre of the crucifixion and death because I was wrong and I spoke wrongly at the beginning of this sermon. There was one innocent person who has died and his name was Jesus who committed no sin, who committed no crime and made himself the perfect sacrifice for us and I am surprised at the massacre, the brutal slaying that was Roman crucifixion. The humiliation, so humiliating that they wouldn't even do it to Roman citizens because what it basically communicated is you are less than human if you are crucified. I'm surprised at the massacre and I am surprised at the mercy because it was all because of God's mercy that Jesus came that if you and I would put our faith and trust in him that Rahab was just the beginning picture of somebody spared from judgment but everyone who puts their faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ can be spared from judgment And that is the story God has been telling for thousands of years. That God is powerful enough to get you through whatever you're facing and he's merciful enough to save you. When you're outside of Jericho, God's powerful enough to get you in. When you are inside, God is merciful enough to get you out. Where are you today? Are you someone who's already put your faith in God and followed him? Then you maybe you're facing some kind of fortification, some difficulty, some trial in your life, some diagnosis, some challenge that you didn't expect. God is powerful enough to get you through it. But maybe you're here today and you're in a situation where you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You've never uh, figured out or heard or known or taken the time to know that when you find yourself in that situation under judgment that God is merciful enough, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, Rahab the prostitute and her family was spared. God will spare you. God will have mercy on you as you put your faith and your trust in him. And it's not hard to do. And maybe you're here today and you want to take that step to put your faith and trust in God, to tell him that you want to follow him and that you want to uh, take him up on that offer of mercy. It's not hard. You can, in your own words, in your own seat, invite God into your life. Tell him that you want him to be the Lord of your life, to be able to confess and say, God, I'm a sinner and I need your grace and your mercy can't save myself. A lot of things we can do ourselves in this world. You can't be deaf. See, we in this story, when it comes to life and death, I think we sometimes mix up what good is and what death is. We think good is this temporary life that may last for 70, 80, or 90 years for very few of us. But God says good is eternal life that goes on forever with me. And we think death is the death that happens at the end of those 40, 50, 60, 70, whatever that day is. God says that physical death does come as a result of sin, but it's not really 
the death that matters. It's the second spiritual death that if you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you should really be concerned about. That's what the story tells. We get so focused on those details, but when you realize what is really good and what the real enemy is, God is merciful enough to save you. And you can in your own seat pray and ask God to say, God, I want to put my faith and my trust in you. I want to trust you with my life. I want to take my hands off the wheel and I want you to take control. And I want to follow you. The God who, yes, is powerful. The God who's holy. But the God who is merciful and loving. And came this week, we remember, to die for you that you might have faith and salvation in him, through him, that you might have life forevermore with God. That's what this week is about. And if you pray that prayer this morning and you make that step, I'd encourage you on that card that you received, on that connect card, if you flip it over to the back, there's a place you can check off. And you can just check off and say, I made the step to put my faith and trust in Jesus today. I just want to know more about what it is to follow Jesus. And you can tear that off and put it in one of the white buckets on your way out the ushers are holding. We'd love to hear about that. One of our uh, staff members will call you this week and talk with you about how to help you on that journey as you begin to follow God. I'm going to ask our music team to return and I'm going to close our service in prayer, uh, close this time in prayer. We're going to sing one more song of um, worship to God and... um, Let's pray. And as I pray, if you are here, I want to give you this moment of sacred space. And if you are one of those people today that you want to today take that step of putting your faith and trust in Jesus, I can think of no better time than Palm Sunday uh, to be able to take that step, to mark that moment, to say today is the day that I stop following my own way. Today is the day that I stopped being in control of my life. Today is the day, Palm Sunday, 2018, that I put my full faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that I trusted God's mercy to save me, and I made him Lord of my life. And so if that's what you wanna do, let me just give you a moment of sacred space to pray that prayer to God and say, God, that's me today. Lord, this morning, I wanna put my faith and trust in you. This morning, I ask you to forgive me of my sins and Lord, just to take control of my life. I give it to you. I put my faith and my trust in you. And I do this in Jesus' name. And God, I pray also for those who find themselves that are followers of God outside the walls of Jericho. They're facing a fortification. They're facing an obstacle. They're facing something difficult in their life. Lord, would you show them today Remind them, remind us today that you are the all-powerful God. There's no wall. There's no fortification. There's nothing that can compare or stand up to the power of our God. And we proclaim this in Jesus' name.